0: This podcast is not suitable for work. If you're under the age of 18, kindly and with all due respect, get the fuck out. I mean it. Go on. Bye-bye. Mm-mm. See you later. This isn't for you. Nope. Mm-mm. America has a strange relationship with sex. We're obsessed with it, but it terrifies us. We censor it because it's constantly being shoved down our throats. But our dirty little secret is, we like things shoved down our throats, especially when we're bonded. Or we're wearing leather, or being slapped around a little bit. And, oh, God. <clears throat> I'm Sunny Megatron. Join Ken Melvoinberg and I as we explore, dissect, and demystify American sex.
1: Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. American Sex with Ken Melvoin Berg and Sonny Megatron.
0: Hey, American fuckers. Okay, this is Sonny, your co-host, Sonny Megatron. And uh, my life is a shit show right now. So, first of all, you know Ken's in, in Los Angeles, right? And we always do our intros together. You notice he's not talking because he's actually not here. His week was so busy... We tried and tried and tried and tried and waited and waited and waited to record the intro together, and we just couldn't coordinate. So it's like Sunday night. I'm rushing to get this done, and uh, you got me. So secondly, the reason my life is a shit show, you may hear pounding in the background, right? Um, They're putting new siding on our house. (laughs) And these guys are great. They're really hard workers. They work late into the night, and they're still pounding. And I'm just like, you know, I got to get this podcast out, so... You know, this is American Sex Podcast. I'm sure y'all love a little pounding, right? I also want to mention that yesterday was Bi Visibility Day. Every year, September 23rd. Bi-Visibility Day. And it doesn't mean that, you know, all other days of the year bisexual people are invisible and you need to sprinkle powder, you know, like flour on the floor to catch their magical footprints. Now, the point of Bi-Visibility Day is to combat bi erasure. Research shows that 40% of the LGBT community actually identifies as bisexual. And only 28% are actually out to their friends and family. And it took me a really long time to realize that and come out as well because I bought into the myths and stigma about bisexuality. Now, I want to mention here that the labels for multisexuality are a little murky. Some people don't like to use bisexual because they say it reinforces the gender binary, you know, bi, man, woman, and there's nothing in between. Some like to use the word queer or pansexual. I use bisexual because... I'm a public figure and the audience that I generally cater to is most comfortable and familiar with the term bisexual. So that's why I choose to use it. And the way I look at it is, yes, bi means two, right? But to me, it doesn't mean man, woman. It means like me and not like me. So I'm sexually attracted to people who are like me and I'm sexually attracted to people who aren't like me. But back to bi visibility and why it's important. So... Now, as I said, you know, only 28% of bisexual people are out. And the reason is due to the stigma. But we all know that hiding an important part of ourselves makes us more likely to not be happy. Statistically, bisexual people are more likely to suffer from anxiety. They earn less money at their jobs. They experience happiness less. They even found that bi and lesbian women are more likely to develop diabetes at younger ages due to to their stress. And by people, why are they misunderstood and erased? Well, it's because our sexuality literally isn't visible like it is for somebody who's straight or gay. So if you hear that I'm married to a man, you're automatically going to assume, oh, you're straight. Or if you see me out on a date with my girlfriend holding hands, you're going to look at me and go, oh, you know, she's a lesbian. When society can't easily identify something and actually see it, it becomes more difficult to relate to. And that's where all of the myths about bisexuality come in. You know, the biggest one, bi people, especially ones who claim to be monogamous, they're untrustworthy sex maniacs that are destined to cheat on you. You know, the reasoning is, hey, if I'm with a man and I've committed my life to one man, I'm going to think about pussy and cuddly women forever, and I'm eventually going to cheat. Well, that's ridiculous. If I'm monogamous and I commit myself to one person, whether it's, you know, man, well, gender doesn't matter. Well, under that same reasoning, wouldn't I be destined to cheat anyway? Because now I've denied myself all of the other people in the world I'm attracted to, no matter who they are. Doesn't make sense. So, yeah, we're sex maniacs that like to have threesomes and we're selfish because we get all the choices, or um, we aren't really bisexual. We're only doing it for attention so we can make out with people in the club. Well, I want to tell you, none of those things are true. And on Bi Visibility Day, listeners who are multisexual, no matter how you choose to label yourselves, I see you. So, thank you for being you. You're awesome. All right, so on to this week's guest. We're talking to Stella Harris. She is such a nerd about communication that she actually wrote a book about it. It's called Tongue Tied, Untangling Communication in Sex, Kink, and Relationships. As a certified intimacy educator and sex coach, she uses a variety of tools to guide and empower her clients, and she teaches everything from pleasure anatomy to communication skills to classes on pounding. You hear this pounding. It's just horrible, but I'm just going to keep going. Communication skills, kink, BDSM. Stella teaches at venues and conferences across North America, and in addition to her new book, she writes a sex column for the Met Week. Widely quoted in the media, Stella has made guest appearances on numerous podcasts, including Sex on the Brain, Strange Bedfellows, Playboy Radio, and of course, the best American sex podcast. Her articles have appeared in Cosmo, com, and her fiction is included in more than a dozen anthologies. I have to tell you, I was blown away by her book. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy. I read it before anybody else did. And I gave an editorial review quote. And this is what I said. No matter your relationship style or kink level, Harris's practical wisdom will completely transform how you relate to others. This book is required reading for healthy relationships. And I absolutely mean that. I predict that this is going to become one of those classics, like you have it on your bookshelf, like Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns, and The Ethical Slut, and those certain like sexuality reference books everybody has. This is going to be the one on communication. You need to get this book. So... Some of the things that we talk about in this episode, what to do when one partner isn't putting in the effort, boundary and expectation setting in early part of a relationship, how communication differs for vanilla and BDSM situations, and Stella gives us some sexual improv tips and other specific exercises you can do to improve communication in your relationships we talk about how to navigate consent without sounding clinical and ruining the mood Communication considerations for high protocol ds relationships and a bunch more so right now i'm hearing ken's voice going hey sonny what time is it and then i say It's big welcome and heartfelt appreciation time to the new members of our Patreon family. So big, huge welcome, thanks, and heartfelt appreciation to Israel and. Mr. Will from the sex blog willhouseofthrills.com They both joined our Patreon family this week. Now if you follow our Patreon page you can get bonus stories from our guests. Extra episodes like the 36 question episode it just bonus episode. It went up. It's good. We laughed we cried. All sorts of stuff. You can get random surprises in the mail and more again it's at patreon.com slash American Sex and oh yeah this week's guest Stella Harris. She has a bonus story on our Patreon page about a very interesting first date. And, you know, you can do like Mr. Will did and choose a prize level that gets you a mention and a link on our Patreon wall of thanks webpage. So if you want to check that out, I'll have the link to that in our show notes at AmericanSexPodcast.com as well. And one more thing you can do to support the show that won't cost you a dime is not fucking pound on my ceiling and my wall with all those hammers. This is getting ridiculous, but you can hit the subscribe button On whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, I am staring at the ceiling like you motherfuckers. Uh, Anyway, if you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. And of course, we love your social media posts and iTunes reviews too. Oh, and one other thing before we get to our interview is every month we give away pleasure products, aka sex toys. Hurry up and enter our American Sex Podcast September giveaway because this is your last week to enter. Castle Megastore has provided us with a Jimmy Jane Love Pod tray valued at $149 for a lucky winner. Now, I like this thing. If you know my favorite vibrator is the Jimmy Jane Form 2. This is very reminiscent of the Form 2. To enter to win, you need to go to sunnymegatron.com slash tray. That's T- R-E. And don't forget, you can always get 20% off select items at castlemegastore.com when you use the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, at checkout. So you ready? Ready for some good communication and way less pounding? And Ken, because Ken is in the interview portion of this. So bye, hammers on my ceiling. Hello, Ken. Hello, Stella. On the line, we have someone that I really dig. And I really dig the work that she's doing lately. Stella Harris. Hi, Stella.
1: Hi, Stella.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being on. So, all right. I have to say that you just recently came out with this book, Tongue Tied, that I read. I got to read an advanced copy, which I feel so special. Thank you. It was Um, so sweet of
2: you to do that. Oh,
0: I was like, you know, okay. I knew this book was going to be good, okay, because I think you're brilliant. When I read it, I was like, holy shit, this This is like the Bible of communication for any type of person in any type of relationship, vanilla, kinky, like... It is. It's just every. I was. Whoa! You got my angel singing. I was like, Oh my god, this is so good. Oh. So, and we're gonna dive into like why it's so good and why people need to like apply some of your principles in their life, whether it's in the bedroom or even like at work and just communicating with whoever, because these are universal across the board um, things that you talk about. So, but you
1: wait. How I, ha- did you I get- have a really, I have a really important question. Do you yeah. know how to communicate with sleepy, grumpy husbands? how do, How do you help yes. with that?
2: We're about to find out.
0: Aren't
1: we? <laughs> okay, and to American fuckers, I'm so sorry. I just came off from an overnight and I, I'm sleepy.
0: Yeah, Ken is really sleepy. It's kind of funny. I don't know. Not to you.
1: Though. It is, though. No.
2: <laughs>
1: but Stella, I'm, I'm very happy that you're with us today.
2: Well, I really appreciate it. I've been a, a fangirl of you two for a long time. Aww. So have me on your podcast and, and getting your blurb about the book. It, it really did make my day. So Aww. I appreciate that. You're one of my favorite Thank people you. to see at
1: conferences because no matter what, it seems like you're always smiling. Oh, <laughs> And that's awesome. And not, not that I need you to smile all the time, but just like you're a very happy person.
0: Thank you. You got a good vibe. You do. We you like your vibe. <laughs> so how did you and your good vibes not only get into kink, but get into education and coaching all this. So give us the background of you.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's a long and convoluted story, as I think it usually is. Um, getting into kink was, I don't, I don't know there was a moment. I think it was inevitable. I mean, I was that, I was a weird kid, um, and now I'm a weird adult. But I mean, as a weird kid, I was the one who would, you know, suggest people tie each other up and... Just do all of that sort of thing, and it took a long time before I realized that that there were words for any of this, or that it's something that grown-ups did. Uh, I was also a, a theater kid, and I remember all of the backstage shenanigans where, you know, most people were experimenting with with making out, and we were like figuring out what it would look like if we like hurt each other a little bit. Um,
1: <laughs> did you really? I was really? a theater
0: kid too, and I was. I'm like, huh. I, know,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I never did that. Kid. I never did that in theater. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was our, our backstage. So fooling wait, around. how would you, now I want to suspend somebody I'm from hearing... a cat. And
1: I want to suspend somebody from a catwalk now. Yes, please.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. What, what does like, like innocent pain experimentation look like? What things did you do?
2: Well, I don't ever said innocent. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> seemingly innocent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, there was one, I remember, uh, there was a cast party and a bunch of us were just at someone's house and there was sort of rolling around on a bed together. And there was a guy I had kind of a crush on and we were sort of really close to each other. And I think at the moment where it might be more expected that like, oh, maybe we're going to kiss now. And instead, uh, he asked me to press my knee up between his legs and push really hard. Um, So that was interesting and, you know, watching his expressions, I was like, huh, okay, this is fun for him. Uh, And yeah, little, little things like that sort of kind of off the wall. It would certainly not have occurred to me to do that at that time. Um, But just experimenting with there being a lot more ways to interact uh, than, than sort of the, the handful that get talked about in the locker rooms. right? Um, And then, By, by my senior year in high school, um, I met someone a little older than me and they started introducing me to things like this that were actually organized. So when I was 17, I went to my first munches in West Hollywood. They were held in coffee shops. So they were all ages. Um, and also started going to meetups in the queer community and in the poly community and basically discovering that all of the stuff I was into and curious about. Was actually a thing that other people did. And in some instances, there were books about it. Uh, That this person that was introducing me to things gave me the book, uh, Screw the Roses.
1: Oh, God. Oh, that's one of our favorite books.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, one of the only ones that was out then, because I'm talking, I mean, I was, this was the 90s. Um, You know, I was figuring out that open relationships were a thing about a year before Ethical Slut came out. Uh, and, you know, pre-internet, so I didn't have a whole lot to go on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So did you grow up in L.A.?
2: I did, uh-huh.
1: What was that like?
2: I mean, it was all I knew, so I didn't have a, a basis for comparison, but it is a very strange place, a very strange and artificial place. Um, You know, movies being filmed around yeah. every corner, <laughs> and people being exceptionally image conscious and in general people not seeming very happy you know I, I compare it to Portland where I live now all the time and that you know most people in LA they, they have some sort of creativity in them they want to be some sort of creative but it's not always for its own sake it's for the fame that comes with it and in Portland, everyone is some sort of creative and wants to do something with that, but they're just doing it. Hmm. You know, people are are making art and theater and, you know, showing it to a room full of 20 people and just, you know, doing it anyway and enjoying it. Um, And in LA, I just remember this vibe of everyone longing for something else, something different. Um, And it just, yeah, it didn't really feel like a great fit for me that the level of image consciousness there everyone always on a diet and lying about their age and
0: yeah yeah um, even
2: some people in my family, you know, were like that and and these days I don't really have much family left, so there's not really anything there for me so I only I only pass through if there's work or a conference there right
0: right and i I've heard one I don't know thing that people say that like, you know, regionally, The kink scene is really different from area to area, state to state, you know, metro to metro. And I hear people say a lot like in L.A., S&M stands more for stand Stand and and model." model (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like you, you stand there in your latex and you look cool and you, you're you at the party and you're there like for looks and show and who can you talk to and who can see you where in other regions of the country, you're just there to like beat the shit out of someone and stick your knee in someone's crotch and, you yeah. know, whatever it is. And I I mean, I don't know, you know, stereotypes are stereotypes. Luckily, the the like handful of parties I've been into LA, they've been more personal ones. So they're not really the standard model ones, but I'm sure that is a thing. People in Yeah, LA I only can... did
2: house parties in L.A. because yeah. I was I was under 21. You know, I left for college, so I never got to any of the big the big spaces that actually would have checked ID. Um, but in in Portland, at least joining the kink scene here was was kind of transformative because because it was less about appearance and it was more about what bodies could do and how they could feel, and that changed a lot for me because when I entered the kink scene here, I was one of those people who would be wearing. You know, spanks and all of the things to you know try to look more slender, right? Uh, And then I realized, well, there's no way I'm stripping out of you know five layers of latex to go and get flogged. So, (laughs) um, and yeah, so that I just started wearing things that were easy to strip out of, and just think about what my body could experience, what I wanted to feel, and
0: spend less time worrying about what I looked like. Yeah, awesome. I, I mean, if you think about it, fetish wear is oftentimes not very conducive to being fetishy. <laughs> like, no. You know, I would much rather, like, honestly, a lot of times I've, I've been over the years kind of dressing more and more down when I go to kink play parties where it's like, you know, give me a pair of like, you know, black bike shorts that I can put a strap on over and I can you know it's kind of like the little shorts version of yoga pants. Yes. Give me a cute top, maybe I'll put like a little <laughs> leather harness over it so I look a little fetishy, but I can move. I can, you know, that's what I want. Yeah. Absolutely. So, an interesting thing when you know when I was reading uh the intro to your book and you had said, you know, one of the light bulb moments in your life that people needed to talk about sex and sexuality, and that you wanted to be one of the people to do that was when you got your period. Can yes. you retell that story? Because <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Sure.
2: Uh, well, I had a pretty big um, sort of transformation in, in in what my life was like when I was younger. Uh, my mom passed away, and I moved in with my dad and his parents. And my mom had been pretty sex positive and was just very matter of fact with me about sex. Um, you know, I remember when she first gave me the sex talk, the only question I had was, what happens if you need to go to the bathroom? <laughs> uh, that, that was my big concern.
0: And sometimes they like that. You know? Yeah, well, just,
2: she didn't get into that. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, she just said, well, you just excuse yourself and go. and just, right. You know, these little matter of fact things. And... And then I lived with my, my dad's parents and yeah, I got my period. I was 13 and luckily I knew all about it and I was expecting it. I hopped on my bike. I went up to the drugstore and got some tampons and, um, my grandmother found them. She, she liked to sort of go through my things, uh, with the excuse of cleaning my room and I wasn't really hiding them. They just weren't on display. Mm -hmm. Um, but she confronted me about these tampons and i i didn't even know how to respond at first i didn't understand why she was upset but she went on to tell me that that i was going to break my hymen and you know there was more to the conversation that i didn't know how to combat at that age there was this this implication that you know i would be ruined for my future husband and this really heavy moralizing And so, yeah, 13, I wasn't ready to explain that virginity is a social construct, but I did at least know that she was incorrect about the anatomy. Right. And I pulled out, I had the full encyclopedia set had been a gift from my other grandmother. And so I pulled out the encyclopedia where it had the anatomy sections with those transparency pages. Um. And so I just I showed her like here's a vulva and here's what the hymen looks like and there's still a considerable opening and if there wasn't where would the blood even be coming from, Um and you know I I went so far as to say I've done horseback riding and gymnastics like it's it's already had kind of a workout.
1: Um, <laughs> oh wait, I have to add something here for our younger listeners: an encyclopedia is the internet. That's a book. <laughs> Or a series of books.
0: And not that encarta thing on CD you had when you were a toddler.
1: No. Yeah. Yeah. They were actual for real paper books that I, told I you everything. That. They told you everything.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. So I didn't go into the level of detail with my grandmother to let her know. Like I'd experimented with shoving things in there a lot bigger than a tampon. Uh, that That I did keep to myself. But – but ultimately, I, I at least won the anatomy argument and she sort of conceded. But that was kind of horrifying to me that, you know, a woman who had had two children um, could actually think that there was just this solid, solid piece of tissue there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I realized that even grownups don't know about bodies and also, that I was always going to have to find my own information, that I was going to have to f- figure it out on my own because she was not going to be a person to ask about any
0: of this. Right, right. So when did that um, knowledge, I guess, converge with your kinkiness? And then you, because you, you're like a certified coach and you, like you do a bunch of stuff, right?
2: I do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it sort of, it was unofficial for a long time because I was such a, a nerd and uh, my mother had been a librarian, so I knew how to research. Um, I, I kept looking things up about whatever the topic was of the day. So first it was things like anatomy. And later when I was becoming sexually active, I did a lot of research about contraception. Um, and so just sort of at each phase of my own development, I became the most informed person of my peers. So people right. ended up coming to me with questions and I would take people to the drugstore to buy condoms because they were frightened to do it. Um, and then by college, it was about sexual pleasure and I was taking people to buy their first vibrators and, you know, explaining the clitoris to people. Um, and I was actually a sociology major with an emphasis on sex and gender. And this is where my passion was, but there were no models of this as a job. I, I graduated undergrad in 2002. Mm -hmm. And, you know, podcasts didn't exist, the internet barely existed. All of the people I look up to now, some of them were already doing their thing. But I, you know, I'd never heard of them, I didn't have access to that. So I went off to law school, and then I dropped out of law school. And then I worked in the nonprofit field for most of a decade before starting to realize that this was a career that existed. And that happened when um, I'd actually taken sort of a long uh, detour into vanilla monogamy. I, I got married. And and when we opened up, the first thing I did was hop on FetLife, make an account and start going to the kink parties here in Portland. And as I got more and more involved in the kink scene, I started getting asked to teach. You know, there were a lot of the the sort of peer groups in town, like the peer led rope groups. Um, And so I started teaching in town and I just loved it. I, I had taught some in my, in my former career in the nonprofit world and I had the theater background. So the being in front of people and the conveying information I was used to, it was just new topics. Yeah. And as I was teaching in the kink scene, I started doing private lessons, mostly around rope bondage And as soon as I was alone with people, they would start asking me, you know, all of those sex questions that I used to get. And that's when I realized that if I wanted to keep doing this, I needed to make sure I was equipped to do the kind of work people were wanting from me. Right. And that's when I went back and I I got my coaching certification and I went and became a certified intimacy educator. And I started hitting all of the conferences, doing as much continuing ed as I possibly could. And that's when I officially hung my my shingle as as a sex coach as well as as an educator and the rest of it.
0: so now, you know focusing towards your book that's all about communication. I'm assuming that in your practice as a coach, how much are or were you know still is are communication issues. Kind of, what's at the roots of why people are seeing you? Like, you know, if you were percentage wise, how much of is of the time is that a huge factor?
2: Almost a hundred percent, probably. Okay. Yeah, I mean, once in a blue moon, someone you know just wants to know about something like better oral sex techniques. Um, but even then, really, you can't come see me without me talking about talking. Um, because even if someone's asking about a better blow job, the first thing I'm going to tell them is they have to ask their partner what they like. There really isn't any sex tip or technique
0: that you can learn that gets you out of having to talk to your partner. Yeah. Does that um, blindside a lot of people that come to you that are like, just teach me the techniques and they're like,
2: what?
1: We got a what?
2: Pizza, yeah. What?
0: Like, do they freak out?
2: They, um, Some. Yeah. Uh, I I teach a class called mapping the vulva. And I sometimes do that with a a live demo model. And in that class, I inevitably get these questions, you know, the they're so used to sort of the clickbaity or women's magazine style headlines, you know, this one move will blow her mind. And that's what they're looking for. And that's what they're asking me for. And I say, you know, I can teach you a dozen different techniques that you can try, but with each one, you're still going to have to ask the other person, what do they think of it? And then here is are some talking techniques you can use to modify that. Cause maybe they'll love this technique a little harder or a little softer or a little faster or a little slower. And you still have to talk to find out. Um, and I get the, but talking ruins the mood people. Um, and I have to I have to convince people that that doesn't have to be true on a very regular basis. So but- wait a
1: minute, no, wait, okay, Sunny, hold so then- Sunny, hold up. Sunny, hold up. God damn it, yeah. Sunny, wait! Don't
0: ruin the mood. Don't ruin the mood. You're talking too much. It's ruining the mood. <laughs> Sorry.
1: So. And this kind of my question kind of relates to what we're just going through here. So sometimes you have conversations that are difficult to start, such as if your wife is over talking you or maybe you have an STI and you don't want to disclose it right away. Or maybe you're trans and somebody doesn't realize it and it's a first date. Does your book help people sort of give them agency to get over those initial hurdles?
2: Yeah, I talk a little bit about um sort of those things that people might think are deal breakers. And there's always sort of the caveat. If you think that your safety could be impacted by making a certain disclosure, obviously I never think anybody is obligated to share anything personal that they don't feel safe or ready to share. Uh, my personal stance on it is that getting things out there up front is really valuable for me personally. I don't want to spend any time or emotional investment with somebody who is ultimately not going to like something that's fundamental about me. So my personal stance is the sooner the better. Um, But I do know that that is horrifying for a lot of people. What I, what I try to tell people is that if they are someone who wants to be able to talk about things as terrifying as it is, that becomes something they want to learn about the other person. And if somebody just melts down and can't have a conversation about STIs on on a first date or a second date what is going to happen if if in 10 years they're talking about how to raise children or share bank accounts because i think we're learning a lot about a person and how they communicate when we're talking about the sex pieces right so that still matters
1: so hypothetically, if I had a friend who liked wearing unicorn masks, getting peed on and having things shoved up his ass, how would I start that conversation? <laughs> I mean, my friend, that? how would my friend start that conversation?
2: <laughs> the, the first thing I think is to decide, is that is that a core part of your sexuality that you absolutely want to engage in with anybody? Oh, that yeah. Sex with?
1: My <laughs> friend definitely has that part of his core sexuality.
2: <laughs> in that case... Generally what I think is best, again, if, if your friend um doesn't feel like they would be unsafe having that be known about them, I would put that out there even before a first date. Um uh, if they're doing online dating, have something that at least hints at, you know, having kinks or fetishes on the profile and just go ahead and, and scare the vanilla folks away. You know, people try to be appealing to everybody. Yeah. And there are a lot of people in this world. And we don't none of us have that kind of time. You cannot go on dates with everybody. And so you want to filter and you want to screen. And it's okay to scare some people away. So have that photo of you in the unicorn mask as one of your photos. Why not? And maybe 99 out of 100 people will be terrified. But that 100th person in you are going to have a great time together.
0: Which is funny because that friend of yours, Ken, the friend of yours, yes, didn't that friend have find the most successful dating profile angle? Yes, was what was their like tagline on their profile?
1: Our first date would be me anally fisting you and shoving your head in a toilet. Or no, like I, I I enjoy anally fisting and shoving your head in a toilet. Of course, that's completely consensual, but that would be our first date. Um. Something along those lines, which was was my friend's OkCupid profile for a long time. And it actually did keep the muggles away. And that 1% of people that enjoyed it either thought that it was so over the top that that couldn't possibly be a thing. Or if it was a thing, they wanted to engage in it.
0: Perfect. So... Another thing that you mention in the book and, you know, talking like you were talking about, you know, if you can't have the conversation about STI, how are you going to raise your kids and, you know, things like that. And one of the things that you say, like early on is basically like, you know, these techniques are only going to work for you if you know that you are responsible for yourself and your behavior. and you're Basically, like if you're not an asshole and you have some ethics, you know what I mean? And you're trying to be a good person, then, you know... Yeah, do these communication techniques. But what if you're... Because I've been here, okay, and I've seen other people be here where... You know, let us say I'm the person, and this isn't you, Ken. This is in the past. But I'm the person because he's sitting there like, "What the fuck, man?" No. So I'm the person who's trying to be really level-headed and fair, and be the one who's like, "Oh, maybe I need to work on this, man. Let's really think about this and talk about." It. And I don't realize that I'm with someone who's like a complete fucking manipulator, and they will never be ethical and play fair. And they're they're one of those people who that I wouldn't be able to raise kids with because we can't have a. Conversation conversation but I'm so dick blind I don't see this right so what do you say to the person who's like well I'm trying to communicate it's just really hard because they're blah blah blah, blah. and you know it's like you got some deeper issues than just like you need to brush up on your communication skills how one if you're you know Let's say counseling that person or coaching that person, how to kind of make them realize, like, hey, you know, maybe you need to snap yourself up and see what's really going on here in the bigger picture. Like, how do you, how do you inspire someone to see that if they're not ready to quite see it?
2: I mean, that sort of hits on it right there. That if they're not ready. Unfortunately, there are times when people simply aren't ready to leave a relationship the same way that there are times when people, you know, who have a problem with something like drugs or alcohol, maybe they're just not ready yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no way to force that. Um, If you force someone to make a change that they're not ready for in relationships like anything else, they could relapse. You could force someone to leave a relationship and then they will go back. Or if they weren't ready to be over it, they will still manage to be in that space all on their own. So I don't think you can force it, right? but what I do think is really important and that I tell people when they're talking about these things, it, it's not just the information that's being conveyed, but you want to pay a lot of attention to how people are having these conversations. You know, with something like the STI conversation, it's not just, you know, do they check off all the boxes and have the right answers, but- Do they seem forthcoming? Do they seem happy to have this conversation with you? Do you get the gut feeling that they're being honest um, and really listen to those things? Because that, that sort of willingness piece can be a big red flag. And that's one of the most frustrating things when I'm working with couples or often working with just one person in a couple and they keep telling me, well, my partner refuses to talk about this or they refuse to do these things. And that becomes really tricky because one of the things that I was taught actually when I was getting my coach certification was that the teacher said to us, people will come to you saying they want you to save their relationship, but that's not your job and not every relationship can be saved. Ultimately, what you need to be doing is telling each person to take care of themselves and work on themselves. And sometimes that part has to come first and maybe two people need to take a little break to work on themselves and be clearer on what they want and need before they can do that together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, it's like so often you, and, and you know, I run into this in whether it's people who are vanilla people or who are monogamous people who are poly people who are, it doesn't matter, you know, there are a certain percentage of relationships where, you know, there is one person who's like putting in all the effort and the other person is like, this is stupid. I'm not interested. I don't want to participate. And it's like, yeah, those are usually the relationships that just if both people aren't willing to make the effort, aren't gonna, you know, last, gonna grow, gonna thrive. And I don't think enough of us, I don't know, we just hang on. You know what I mean? Like people are hang oners.
2: I I get it. I mean, I was a hang oner. You know, yeah. I was in a marriage a lot longer than I probably should have been. And, you know, my ex is the lovely human being and we're still friends. we just weren't a good fit for each other. But, you know, I don't think momentum can be overstated or You know, that all the things that happen when you're building a life with someone, that, that structure and that stability and that safety is an awful lot to walk away from for anybody. And if you add a financial component or if you add children, it can be almost impossible to, to break out of that. And I think the other piece of that is that our culture, it doesn't, it doesn't really prioritize sex or sexual satisfaction. You know, if you say everything in my relationship is great, except the sex, an awful lot of sources will treat it like you're the problem, like you are sex crazed or a sex addict, which I don't believe in, but they will put all these labels on you that there's something wrong with you that you're focusing on that if everything else is great. And so we do have a lot of people who are, you know, building lives together and aren't having the kind of sex that they want or the kind of connection that they want because we don't treat that as essential to overall well-being.
0: Hey, did you know American Sex Podcast has a Patreon page? Becoming a Patreon member is a great way to show your support for this podcast. It works kind of like, I don't know, funding for National Public Radio or how PBS works. If you appreciate our work, and the fact that we provide it to the world free of charge, then you can help support it. And as a member of our Patreon family, you'll be eligible for nifty, cool rewards like bonus episodes, surprises in the mail, and more. Oh, and you'll get all of our episodes early, bonus stories from guests, and access to our private Patreon feed. So you're thinking about it? You want to know more? Check out all the details at patreon.com slash American Sex, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash American Sex. Castle Megastore once you see their sex toys you'll want more I have no idea if Castle Megastore actually has a theme song but I really dig Castle Megastore so that's my gift to you Castle your very own theme song and you listeners get a gift too if you go to CastleMegastore.com and use discount code Sunny that's S-U-N-N-Y when you check out you will receive 20% off your order that's amazing Castle Megastore mega store when you get your sex toys you'll be on the floor because you'll be using them so much and they'll be so awesome and you'll save so much money you'll get more than one and then you'll climax for a really long time and you'll just be passed out and you'll be like oh my god give me water there's the best orgasm ever
1: so one of one of the issues i think we all have as people that have jobs with the word sex in the title is that Sometimes people take that as an open invitation to not be inappropriate per se, but it can lead to that where they, they, they maybe think that it's okay to hit on you. How do you handle that as a sex coach? I've always wondered that because that's something that Sonny does some and you do some, I don't do a whole lot of sex coaching. Um, but I imagine that that can be an issue. How do you handle that?
2: I don't tend to have the problem with people who are my clients. Um, you know, the intake is really clear about boundaries, but walking through the world, as you said, the job title that has sex in it, um, completely changes everything. Um, and it can be really disheartening. And I've had this conversation with other educators and coaches. Um, I think because people are so starved for conversations around sex, when they see someone that they can talk about those things with, they do kind of lose their minds a little bit. And, start sending sexually explicit messages or they will conflate sort of the job and the person and, and you lose, I think a lot of the the sort of decorum you might have when you're first meeting somebody. Um, I, I do tiptoe around this sometimes, you know, sometimes on, on dating profiles. I, I've done all of the social experiments where uh, sometimes I have the, the version that your friend had where I put it all out there <laughs> And, and sometimes I, you know, I will just say, like I'm a writer, which is also true. Um, but then I still have to have those conversations later and potentially scare people away. Um, but I do then get less dick pics and less sexually explicit first messages. Um, it is, it is definitely a balancing act because I think when you work in the sexuality field, especially for someone who is female presenting, um, it does give a lot of people. They think it gives them license to be um, overly intimate right away, and to sort of jump past a lot of sort of necessary hurdles in getting to know
1: somebody. Mm-hmm. Thank exhausting. you for sh- yeah. Thank you for sharing that, by the way, because I think a lot of our listeners who aren't sex educators or sex workers may not realize you know just the the, the common problems of just having to go to a party and talk about your career, for example. And I yeah. think that, that that sort of thing happens to all of us. And with sex workers, you know, they not only have that added to it, but then people surprised that they might have kids or a husband or just sort of, you know, mundane things like owning a pet. You know, people just don't realize how mundane our lives are. And we, we sometimes crave just the regularness of life and don't want to necessarily talk about our jobs all the time. Cause like, I know that when I was in the medical field, I didn't want to talk about the medical field all the time. That just wasn't, yeah. you know, wasn't an enjoyable thing. So thank you for sharing that.
2: Of course. Yeah. I recently actually did a, a, a storytelling show here in Portland, got up on stage and sort of the thesis of my story was how my job has sort of ruined my, my personal life um, because of the, the number of assumptions that that people have. And I feel like I've gotten in this ridiculous place where people come to see me for the, you know, quote unquote, spice up their sex life, you know, have more exotic sex, more threesomes, open their relationship, more kink. And meanwhile, in my personal life, you know, I'm having lots of threesomes, lots of group sex, all kinds of weird kinky stuff. And I'm sort of craving what the people who come to me have and are tired of, you know, I just want to cook dinner with someone and snuggle and watch a movie.
0: It's like the grass is always greener. It really is. You know, maybe to us, like the not taboo has become taboo. So we crave it.
2: A friend of mine was (laughs) saying um, her partner loves to, to look through the tabs on her iPad to see what, what porn she's been watching.
0: Uh
2: And, you know, she's a filthy pervert like me. So there's all sorts of weird stuff on there. And the only time she was sort of horrified and embarrassed was when she had a couple of tabs open of like eye gazing romantic porn. And she was horrified that he <laughs> he caught her watching. It's like, people just like looking each other in the face and making love. Oh, so so yeah. Even even us dirty perverts like the sweet stuff sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> that is funny. So I think of you as a dirty pervert. I hope you take that as a compliment. Um, Absolutely. you know, you you have been in the kink scene for a very long time. You're very knowledgeable about what you do, and obviously you've got some kick-ass communication skills when it comes to negotiating some of that really kinky stuff, like you know, wearing the unicorn mask and getting that. What is it, the slip? or unicorn or whatever, um, and all sorts of things. However, before we get to that, because like, when I look at your book, it's tongue tied, there's a bondage, or, you know, um, a pretty rope tied on there. I look at the book, when I first before I read it, I'm like, this is going to be all like, this is for the kinky people only. And I was really surprised and delightfully surprised how it really applied to Every, I mean, there's like, you know, I'm really super on the kinky end of the spectrum. And then there's like, I love eye gazing porn on the other end of the spectrum, it's, you know, applied to everybody. And one of the, the, the foundational things or the basics that everybody should have with their partner and that you talk about is like, the boundary setting and expectation setting stage of the relationship, because that's kind of the foundation for any other things you're going to be talking about. So can you touch on that a little bit? Because I think we're all, no matter kinky or not, really bad at this. We're really bad at establishing our boundaries and our expectations. So can you give us some hints and tips of things we can do better or maybe things we don't do so good now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think communication is the same for everyone. I don't think there's a separate set of communication skills. You need to be a kinkster. I think everybody should try to have these communication skills. I just think that people who are doing stuff that is physically more risky are just going to get into trouble a lot faster if they mm-hmm. don't have the good skills, but everyone's eventually going to get into trouble if they don't have the communication. And one of the things that I always know right away that people are going to be in trouble is if someone says the word obvious to me. Um, so if uh. if I ask them, you know, if it's somebody who who is coming to me for dating coaching and they're looking to meet someone and I start trying to ask them, well, what kind of person are you trying to meet? And, and you know, what do you want in a relationship? And they will say something like, well, obviously I want an active sex life. Um, and someone said this to me recently. I'm like, well, let's hang on. <laughs> Is that is that obvious? Do you think everybody who is looking for a relationship wants to have an active sex life? Well, maybe not. I mean, some people are asexual. Some people prioritize sex a great deal less. And even then within that, how many assumptions are in that statement? So active? What does that mean? Are you saying that and you mean once or twice a day and someone else might think active is, you know, once or twice a month? Right. You know, so many of the terms that we use are so vague that two people can mean well and have intended to communicate and still leave the conversation with, with different perceptions of, of what has been said or what has been agreed to. Right. So I really try to get people to just slow way down and unpack everything they think and anything that they think is obvious and to really get into detail, defining their terms, anything like, you know, um, like the word active or um, just a- anything that you're saying with someone or even, you know, someone recently said to me, well, well obviously I'm looking for honesty. And then we had to, again, go into that. Well, what, what does honesty mean? Because someone might think that means complete transparency about everything And someone else could think that just means not lying when you're asked a question. Right. Maybe they never volunteer any information.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And neither of
2: those people is necessarily wrong. They're just going to, you know, have some problems with each other if they haven't gotten on the same page with their definitions.
1: Right. You know what? One of the things that I've always uh, expressed to people on that subject is it's, it's sort of like learning about mutual masturbation with your partner. The Mm -hmm. only way you can know How they like things to feel is to watch them masturbate. And the only way to know how to communicate with them is to talk to them on that level as well. See how they want to be communicated with. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn your partner. So it's not just about learning communication, but it's about learning communication with that person.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I try to get people to even talk about how they want to talk. And, and when they want to talk, you know, the timing of conversations or encouraging people to encouraging people to let their partner consent to a conversation before it happens, you know, don't just spring something huge on somebody, ask them when they're willing to talk about it.
0: Yeah. All right. So what are some like tools and exercises that people can use, whether that's stuff that they do by themselves to become more self-aware, better communicators or things they can do with their partner to kind of practice this, you know, not only the communication skills, but like the playfulness and the openness that they need, not only for just communication intimacy, but even on, on a sexual sense as well.
2: Absolutely. And that that playfulness is something I really try to get people to work back into things. Um, you know, if you know anything about me, you know, I, I laugh about everything. It's my response to happiness. It's my response to pain. And I think what happens for a lot of folks, especially if they have been struggling with something like sex and intimacy for a while, all of the joy goes out of it. Yeah. And they can be so nervous about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And there's so much tension in the room that they're almost, um, almost guaranteed to fail. And so that's one of the things I try to do is derail that seriousness and bring playfulness back into the room.
0: Yeah. And
2: sometimes I use some, some sort of kink elements, even with folks who aren't necessarily kinky. It can be helpful to teach people something they've never tried before so that there's no ego attached to their skill set with it. So people tend to attach a lot of ego to whether or not they're good at sex, whatever sex means for them. Um, but people might be less likely to um, think they're already supposed to be good at something like rope bondage or sort of anything that can sort of be sort of silly as you're learning it or as you're trying it. Uh-huh. So introducing a new kink, introducing a new toy, something like that, something where they can sort of learn together, start from zero together can be really helpful for folks. I encourage people to try some sort of role play, even something really silly. Like a lot of people tell me they're afraid to try role play or dirty talk because they think it's silly and they'll laugh. And so for this, that's that's sort of the goal, you know, try the kind of role play that is almost guaranteed to make you laugh and that you can't get through with a
0: straight face. Yeah, yeah. Like I have the best time role playing, like the funnest part for me role playing. Sure, it's fun to be in the character, but it's those moments where you kind of break character and you laugh with each other. Like, oh my God, this is so funny and ridiculous. Or, you know, I can't believe I said that funny thing. And you break character with each other and you giggle. And then, okay, then you try to get back into character. But to me, those are the little golden nuggets of role play that make it fun.
2: That's so good. And then that's such a shared experience that you can bond over. Absolutely. Uh Uh And I do, I borrow from my theater background with this as well. A really common theater exercise that they teach when you're learning improv is yes and.
0: Uh Uh, Yep.
2: And so, you know, with the caveats, obviously that you can always say no to anything you need to say no to, but that's a way that people can um, sort of break the ice with dirty talk. You know, one person says something and the other person just agrees and adds to it. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
2: can't wait to take your clothes off. Like, yes. And I want to feel your hands on my body and just keep going that way because people never know what to say if they're going to talk
0: during sex. Yeah. Yeah. And And I I sort of. Oh, go go ahead. ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just, just... I'm nerding out on like the sex (laughs) improv with you, but keep going. Keep going,
2: I was just gonna say I sort of I, I modified sort of a, another version for folks where instead of yes and and this would not work nearly as well for for improv, but for sex, it tends to work. um no, but
0: oh my God, you read my mind because that's what I was just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, perfect. <laughs> uh,
2: people are really afraid of saying no because they think it's going to derail everything. and if they say they don't like something or they don't want something, sometimes people just retreat to their separate corners and pout about it and it ends all activity. But if you give somebody else something else to do right away, you can sort of still get your no in there, which is vital, but keep the activity going. So the same with, you know, when you're on stage and you don't want silence and if in the bedroom, you don't want to sort of come to that. I don't know. What do you want to do? You know, if somebody starts pinching your nipples and you hate that you could say, you know, no, thank you, but would you pull my hair? And just immediately, they are directed to another activity and things keep going and flowing. Mm. While at the same time, you're not enduring that thing that you don't like for fear of upsetting the other person.
0: Right. And, and, you know, American fuckers who are listening along right now having like their synapses in their brain all light up sparkly colors. I want to refer you back to Uh, The episode we did with Midori, where she calls, um, what does she say, that kink is... Um, childhood like play with adult privilege and better toys. That's and, amazing. you know, she's so any, good at the sound oh, bites. She is so good. <laughs> and, and, you know, Ken and I, we teach a class on sex and humor. We, t- in a lot of our classes, whether it's humiliation, you know, any sort of kink class or even sexual communication class, we talk about like play theory and the importance of play. So theme American fuckers listening along, play is super duper important in sex. We're all telling you this. So. And there's a reason,
2: right? Kingsters and swingers, they all use the term play for when they're going to get together and do their thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, all right. What about being trauma informed in your sexual communication because a lot of the roadblocks that we have or the hesitation we have might be because maybe I have, you know, a, a touch of PTSD around this certain thing or something happens and that might really trigger you and bring you back to, you know, a, a bad experience. So how do we move about communicating with our sexual partners, but to be trauma informed and to know how to respond when those things come up,
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, the statistics being what they are and and this is incredibly discouraging, but you know it's more likely than not that anyone that you engage with sexually has had some sort of a bad experience in the past, whether or not they conceptualize it as an assault, there's a really good likelihood they've had some sort of a bad experience. So it is always safer to assume that that is a thing that might be the case when you're engaging with somebody new. Mm-hmm. And that's also one of the things that we, like we talked about before that somebody might not be bringing up on a first date. Um So it's also very impossible. You'll be engaging with someone before they have told you uh, about some of their history. And so it's always safer to assume that everybody might have something that's triggering for them, might have something that's upsetting for them. And in general, I think that, the same communication across the board, I think is ideal to use with everybody, whether or not they have a trauma background. Um, So things that I suggest, and again, that sometimes people laugh at me for, but I always say, ask about everything. So start your sort of being consent focused right from the get-go, you know, agreeing together on where you're going for a date, negotiating who's paying, you know, if you're walking home from the date, even asking before you step into someone's personal bubble, asking before you put your hand around their shoulders, certainly asking before a kiss and etc. So starting right from the get-go, making it very clear that somebody is always going to have agency in everything that's happening. And this does a couple of things. For one thing, if somebody knows that you're always going to ask, they can relax a little bit and they don't have to be so conscious about needing to protect their boundaries at all times. Mm-hmm. And it starts setting the tone because for some of those people who say that talking ruins the mood, I think they're imagining having everything just flowed organically. And then in the middle of sex in the bedroom, they start reciting a litany of, of precisely how they want to be touched and what they want to do next. That could be a little odd. Right. But if you've started The sort of openness and communication all the way back when you were talking about where you're even going to go for a date, and you've been talking about every little thing as you go, then it's going to feel really natural to say, here are things that I like, here are things that I don't like, how about you? And asking someone, you know, not just are there things you don't like, but but are there things that, that I should avoid? Are there things that would be upsetting or difficult for you?
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: this is something that comes up, especially in, in kink negotiation. And then I think is is sort of one of those kink tools that everyone should use, but asking in advance, what do you need? What do you want me to do if you do have a strong reaction to something? So right. if, if somebody starts crying, like, what does that mean for you? Because some people Crying is not necessarily a bad thing. Crying doesn't necessarily mean stop, uh, but you need to know that in advance. Say, right. You know, does crying right. mean stop? Does it mean check in? Does it mean keep going? Does it, it mean you're making, you hit the nail on the head? Like, does it mean you're quick. making
1: lube for me? I mean, right, exactly.
2: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, not the best lube but <laughs>
1: right. Right. <laughs> so I, I, have a, I have a serious blood question blood and You're tears so, are so
0: disappointing blood as lube. In,
1: they really are But
0: symbolically but, they're amazing but like actual performance wise not the most practical lube
1: so if you have somebody that say absolutely abhors people asking them uh, for consent to be kissed what's a good way to sort of do an icebreaker without being like do you consent to me kissing you? Um, what, what's, a, what's another way around that, perhaps, like to give them a different choice?
2: Well, my first thing would be to say to, to that person is to try to work with them about why that's so hard for them. I think a lot of people don't like to be asked because it can sort of trigger some internalized sex shame or slut, slut shaming because if they have to say yes to something, then they are admitting that they want it. And I think that that plays into this old paradigm of one person having the sex and the other person trying to get it from them and just proceeding until you find a no. And I think that that, that whole paradigm is, is part of what gets us into a lot of the trouble that we're in right now. So, so I would start by sort of challenging that person and having a little bit of pushback around that. Um, that said, for people who do have a hard time articulating for whatever reason, that is then another point of negotiation. Um, I actually played with somebody once who had a bit of a hard time with the talking and, and also a bit of a hard time with, with body part words around their body. And what they asked me to do was just to keep going slow enough that they could always sort of get an idea of what was happening next and have plenty of time to stop me or change something. And so in that instance, you know, I might start at somebody's foot and I'm moving my hand up their leg incredibly slowly. And as I keep moving, they get to keep checking in with themselves if they need to stop my hand or redirect me in some way. But whenever you're playing without words, I will say that that is an added layer of risk and that makes it more likely that that a boundary can be crossed and that something could go wrong. So I would definitely encourage people to, to negotiate the not talking before they commence the not talking right? Um, and to just maybe not do that with someone you don't have a degree of trust built up with already.
1: So okay. might it be a good idea to say something like, are you the sort of person that wants to be asked to be kissed or do you want me to just kiss you? Is that appropriate?
2: I think that that's the kind of thing that you could, you could talk about early on. I definitely suggest that people negotiate the talking. Um, again, my default is just to do the asking. And if somebody has a hard time with it, to, to figure out why. Um, and some of that absolutely gets complicated. You know, if people are, are engaging in certain power dynamics, you know, there might be an overarching negotiation that, that ends up meaning they don't ask about every little thing. Yeah, but on, on first dates and when you're just getting to know someone, honestly, I don't know that, that I trust brand new people enough to not ask.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think there's also something to be said too, you know, whether this is, you know, more, I would say maybe not necessarily first, first date, but early on in, in a relationship with a person where there aren't going to be moments of more, um, you know, uh, what's the word? I'm not like not assumed consent. What's the word I'm looking for? Implied consent Implied or consent or whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Um, but not making it so clinical. You know, it's like, hello, pretty lady, may I put my hand on your shoulder? Yes or no, check this box. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have to be so clinical. It can be like, you know, your your lips are really luscious and beautiful, and I I would love to kiss you would you like that too would you were you thinking that too to kind of you know put it in more of a sexy dirty talk sort of framework without making it sound so clinical so it seems a little bit more natural and uh, it has the same mood as whatever else is going on you know what i'm saying
2: yeah absolutely the talking can be it can be part of dirty talk it can be part of flirting i think people are often surprised that when something is is both well-phrased and welcome, it doesn't feel as awkward as they think it's going to. It can actually be really sexy.
0: Yeah. And I think people are just afraid with their words. Like, even I was like, "Um, your uh, lips look um, really luscious right now. They're like cherries. May I put my lips on them and smash (laughs) them with yours, honey, wink? Like, I mean... (laughs) You know gonna get a little, a little smooth practice there, and you brought up another thing that I think is really important too, like dynamic wise. this is one one more thing I want to cover is like if your dynamic is, you're the submissive, and you know let's say you have a you know really protocol driven kind of twenty four seven dynamic and you're the submissive, and you start to conflate like, wait a minute. Am I overstepping my bounds by maybe like, maybe I'm not supposed to speak out of turn and that's our negotiated, you know, thing. But right now, I feel like I need to, you know, have a conversation or negotiate something or revisit something consensually. How do you balance that out when you're the submissive? Like, oh, this might be going against protocol, but I need to speak up right now.
2: Yeah, I feel pretty strongly that, that people always need to be able to speak up for themselves regardless of their dynamic. Um, I definitely get heckled a little bit when I'm teaching in kink spaces because of this. Um, but that's one of those things, again, I think you need to have negotiated that in advance. Negotiate how you want those check-ins to work. If you need someone to raise their hand and say, please, may I speak? Uh, if that's what helps sort of save the dynamic, But having something built in so somebody can always speak up for themselves. Uh And I also think it's really valuable for people to have regular planned check ins that are outside of the dynamic. So if you're living 24 seven, maybe once a week you go to a a coffee shop, some neutral location, and you have a quick check in, you know, sort of your weekly check in 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 an egalitarian way where you both can speak up for yourselves. Um, I've also something I've seen work and that I've actually done when I've been in DS relationships is, is keeping a journal, you know, that the other person for the other person to read and check on when they want,
0: mm-hmm. So
2: you could sort of put all your ideas out there, what you liked, what you didn't like, sort of a scene journal relationship journal, and then they can get that information that way. If it feels easier to write it than to, than to speak it, but regardless of your dynamic, there's really no way around uh finding out what somebody needs and wants and how they're feeling.
1: That's unique. That's it's interesting because I do the same thing when I'm training submissives. The very first thing I have them do is get a mead, um, like old school marble composition book. Yep. Um, and I have them write everything from their fantasies, their, uh, sexual adventures, their times with me, the things they like, the things they don't like, and that we review it Mm -hmm. regularly together. Mm -hmm. Um, just because it's something that I found you know, especially for people that are new to BDSM, it gives them a roadmap of where they started and where they're they're at by the time that they end up leaving.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I suggest that to, to all sorts of people. I mean, the, one of the most common things I'm, I'm likely to assign as homework in my in my coaching is that kind of journaling because um, it can be really helpful to, to look back and see how you've grown or to look back and see other patterns. You know, maybe if, if a relationship ends up being not that great for you, you might need to be able to page through a few weeks and months and see like, oh, I've actually been unhappy for a while. right? Um, so that the writing piece, obviously, I'm a, I'm a huge writing nerd, but I think that, that could be a great tool for a lot of things.
0: Well, this has been amazing. Thank you for kind of letting us into your your world and giving us a peek at How, and I'm not going to say easy because communication is not easy, (laughs) but the way that you lay it out and the way you lay out the different exercises you can do and the different ways you can address issues and whatnot is so simple to follow. And you make it feel easy, even though, yes, communication is still complex. Um, You make it accessible. That might be a good word for it. (laughs) Um, So, and I I highly encourage everyone listening, seriously, whether you're kinky or not or monogamous, it does not matter. I really feel that this book, after reading it, you know how we have our classics, like we have "Screw the Roses," is still on my shelf because to me, it's like the joy of cooking, but of sex. Like, <laughs> oh, I want a quick, like, quick tutorial on like how do I do that rope tie again? Boom! Like it's a good reference book, and I think your book is going to become a communication classic. I think it's a book that everyone has to seriously have on their bookshelf, no matter what kind of relationship they're in. So thank you. You're so kind. Thank you. And so really quick, I'm going to have for all of the American fuckers listening, I'm going to have in the show notes, the links to your book and your website and your social media. But give us a quick just few little points of where we can find you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm all over the internet. Um, You can find me on Instagram as Stella Harris Erotica, Twitter, Stella Erotica, Facebook, Stella Erotica, uh, back from my erotica writing days, um, and yeah, I'm all I'm all over the place. Come say hi to me on the internet.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much. This has been great.
1: Thank you, Stella.
0: Thank you. ready. Bye bye.
1: Bye. Go buy your book.
0: Yes. <laughs>